This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. One of the primary goals of education is to prepare youth for the labor market. This task is infinitely difficult because economies are constantly changing. What will the global labor market look like in 30 years? And how will it impact specific countries? It's impossible to know for sure, which therefore makes deciding which skills to teach inside national school systems today difficult to pinpoint. It's a major public policy question facing most governments. But there are some skills that employers want right now that they feel schools are not teaching. Plus, with the labor movement in decline worldwide, jobs have become precarious for many people. This reality requires laborers to have the grit and tenacity to be flexible in their job choices as economies change. Can schools teach these soft skills to students? Should they? My guests today have recently co-edited a book that dives into this subject, looking at the skills deemed necessary by employers but lacking in students. The book is entitled Bridging the Skills Gap, Innovations in Africa and Asia, which was published by Springer earlier this year. With me today are two of the co-editors, Wamboy Mungay and Chuba Jayram. Wamboy is a communications officer at Results for Development, where Shuba is a senior program officer. Wamboy Mungay and Shuba Jayram, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. It's great to um, be here talking to you. Thanks, Will. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Wamboy, what is the skills gap? Um, this is, I guess, the theme of what we'll be discussing today. So, in a nutshell, the skills gap is the gap that exists between what employees are looking for and the skills that youth have. Partly due to this gap, a lot of young people are unemployed. Um, one in eight young people worldwide, according to some estimates. Um, and in Africa and Asia, the concerns that employers have with the skills of the young labor market um, is their difficulty with filling vacant positions. And this stems from two sources. One is that there are skills shortages, meaning there aren't enough graduates at a particular level, a particular level of education or in the right field of study. And the other challenge is the skills mismatch, meaning whether young people are educated or not, they lack the skills to fill open positions. So what's happening is we're seeing more and more African students completing secondary school and entering universities. Um, but at the same time, only 6% of young people in Africa are enrolled in higher education institutions compared to a global average of about 26%. Um, and a real mismatch exists between the African education system and the jobs in a knowledge-based digital economy. So too many graduates are earning degrees only to find that they're not qualified for lucrative employment opportunities because of the lack of basic te technical and transferable skills. Um, then in Asia, the situation isn't much more encouraging. Um, a significant share of Asian workers feel that they are over or undereducated for their jobs. And meanwhile, you have employers lamenting over a lack of qualified graduates. In fact, um, a manpower 
group survey shows that 48 and 48% of employers have difficulty filling vacancies in Asia in 2015 compared to 28% in 2006. So this and just to put it in context the skills gap is very alarming when you consider that Africa and Asia are now today in the present day and will in the future be home to the largest youth population in the world. So what sort of skills you mentioned technology and transferable skills what exactly what what sort of skills um, do employers seek that students do not have currently so some of the skills that employees are looking for are what we call soft skills so skills that are very important but tend to be difficult to measure or quantify Um, skills like communication like leadership like critical thinking that's those are the kind of skills that employers are increasingly prioritizing. And of course, you have in this digital economy, um, IT skills, skills related to, you know, using um, computer technology as well. And just to add to that, these these soft skills are often known by many terms. You know, they're called soft skills. They're called non-cognitive skills. They're called life skills, 21st century skills, oftentimes but but as you know, when Boy said, they really are a broad set of wide ranging skills, and and they are critical for young people to to be able to succeed not just in the workplace but also in their personal life. So how do we know that there is a skills gap? I mean, presumably, there is always a skills gap because education will lag behind the changing economies of different countries. So how do we how do we know that there's a skills gap and then how do we you know in a sense know that the skills we're we're saying are are missing will be the skills needed in the future when economies have changed. Yeah. To your, to your first question there how how do we know that there's a skills gap? So so I think one of the ways we know is is what we mentioned before the the employer surveys that take place regularly that ask employers are you able to find graduates are you able to find uh adequately skilled workforce to to fill the opportunities that you have. And and these surveys are showing that employers are actually having a tremendous amount of difficulty filling their vacancies. So these, they're jobs, but employers can't find skilled employees to fill those positions. And, and so, for example, you're seeing that, you know, not just in, in Asia, but you're also seeing that in Africa and more, more globally. And the most recent manpower survey, actually, 2016, shows that 40% of global employers report a, a shortage of talent. They just can't find the, the employees with the right skill set to fill their vacancies. And and your second question was around, you know, isn't there always going to be a skills gap as economies change? And, and so, you know, what uh, what does that entail and what would that look like? I, I think, you know, I, I think that's a great question. I think that's a great point. And I think that's why there needs to be this emphasis on ensuring that young people have those soft skills or whatever we choose to call them, those life skills. And and really the focus needs to be on transferable skills and learning how to learn. Uh, And these are skills that you can take with you from one job to the next, whether it's leadership, whether it's communication, whether it's 
being a problem solver, being an analytical thinker. Uh, and, and these skills, you know, for example, teamwork or self-confidence, they, they really are applicable regardless of the industry, regardless of the sector, and, and are critical for, for young people to adapt to a changing market as well. So is, is this, you know, being able to go take, take certain skills from one job to the next, it makes me th think that this is also about um, preparing students for a global economy that is much more about precarious work, where, where people don't work in the same field their whole lives, but have to be, in a sense, entrepreneurial and, and be able to take on new jobs because the jobs, the employers they get don't necessarily have um, the need for them long term or they can always move to another country and find cheaper labor. So is this in a sense, you know, is this idea of transferable skills and preparing students in education to work in the, the labor market really signifying that the labor market has, has really changed um, in the 21st century um, to be much more precarious. Mm -hmm. So two thoughts there. I think I think the first is is absolutely the the jobs of today may not be the jobs of tomorrow, and that may not be the jobs twenty thirty years from now. And so having those transferable skills and being able to adapt uh, to what jobs may exist. 5, 10, 15 years from now, whether it's in your your geographic region or in another district or in another city, I think that's absolutely critical. The second point just to make here is that many of these soft skills, these skills we've spoken about, such as entrepreneurial skills, communication, leadership, are very important not just for the, the formal sector, but also for the informal sector. And the bulk of jobs in, in many parts of Asia in Africa are in the informal sector. And so these skills are going to be critical to be able to thrive in the informal sector as well. Running your own business, for example, or being able to navigate uh, as an entrepreneur. So do, if you were to ask, um, if you were to do this survey about skills in education and maybe the gap of skills that education is providing youth, um, and if you were to ask non-business owners or, say, labor unions or, say, government policymakers or, say, students themselves or, say, parents, do you think you'd get different answers of to what this skills gap looks like? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think to be, to be honest, this is, you know, we haven't done research in this area and we don't quite know enough about this space, but, but I imagine you may get some different responses. So I imagine... Depending on who you ask, the prioritization of the skills that are needed may be different. Uh, and I think that's something to keep in mind. So depending on, on, the, on the industry, on the geography, the skills prioritized and, and you know, the hierarchy of skills, I think you could see that it's different. But a lot of the research we, we have seen and we have looked at shows that regardless of the sector and regardless of the general prioritization, Though the bucket of soft skills and non-cognitive skills does some, fall somewhere near the top, but the prioritization of that and the relative weight may vary based on the industry sector uh, employer. These non-cognitive skills 
are presumably different than what what I normally think of as vocational training, where you're being trained for, for say, a specific job, or, or maybe IT is, is part of vocational training these days. Um, so what, what role do you see vocational training playing in the skill development in education? Um, I can take this. So this in most, in most developing countries, students have the option of either going into the formal track, the traditional academic path, or pursuing vocational training, um, specific training that pre prepares them for, you know, a specific um, avenue of work. Um, and the latter, vocational training, tends to be the better option for students seeking immediate, or is considered the better option for students seeking immediate employment. Um, but what we're finding is that in many countries, it's highly stigmatized. Um, and the curriculum uh, or curricula of many vocational institutes is not always aligned with the um, with what's demanded from today's you know twenty first century economy. Um, and in fact, you may have heard the expression well that vocational education is a great thing for other people's children. Um, so I mean, and we're, we're seeing this like in the case of India, for example, where there's a longstanding perception that vocational education is only for students who perform poorly in academic studies. So then the default becomes to pursue vocational education. But we're also seeing some positive examples where, you know, pr programs, um, these are sort of privately run programs, are working to address this. So we've studied the case of Lender Hand India, um, which is based in India. Um, and this program allows rural students to learn hands-on skills in a number of vocational areas so that they can make an informed choice as to whether and what type of vocational or technical um, track they want to pursue after graduation. But what's interesting and, you know, particularly, particularly encouraging about this program is that um, it also emphasizes relevant soft skills like ent entrepreneurship and critical thinking. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I would say that's kind of, that's what we've seen or what we've learned about vocational training. Um, there's also been some efforts to incorporate um, or consider typically excluded groups, like disadvantaged groups, into this area. Um, so, for example, in Vietnam, um, only 2% of people with disabilities have access to vocational training, but there are programs that are working to address this. And one of them that we studied is called the Information Technology Training Program, and this this program, which is funded by USAID, it has trained over 900 students with disabilities in advanced IT skills, soft skills, and job searching skills. And 70% of them, those trained, um, were able to find jobs. So that's that's encouraging too. Do you think that um, vocational training needs to be brought into the school curriculum, or if it should? Main, remain kind of separate, like you said, those two different tracks, the academic pursuit in secondary school and then the vo vocational track for other students? So, yeah, this is, it's a, that's a fantastic question, and it moves slightly out of the bounds of our research. Um, but I think one thing that, you know, I, I, I hinted at in my response is that, you know, it's important for students to have flexibility in terms of what they want to pursue. And it's also important for us to kind of destigmatize vocational training. Um, 
but you know, one thing, the reality of vocational education is that it tends to be expensive. So many economically advanced countries can bear the high cost of um, vocational programs and have chosen to include specialized vocational education and training in their upper secondary stages. Um, but in situations and cases in the developing world where only a minority of the age group continues in school beyond primary education, it's, it's a bit of a more, it's a, it's a more complicated, um, question. And what about strategies to destigmatize vocational education? Did, did you, in your research, did you come across any, any ways to do that? So, we haven't um, we haven't covered um, specific strategies that can address the stigma. What we have done is shed light on programs that are successfully working within vocational education to get people employed and productive. Um, and I mentioned one before, which was Lend a Hand India, and there are um, a few others which are highlighted in our book and our previous um, skills-related research. So um, we haven't really delved into specific strategies to address the stigma question, but I, you know, it's it's you know something important you're flagging and potentially an area of new research for us or um, others who are interested in tackling this topic. So when you looked at all these different programs in these different countries in Asia and Africa, mm-hmm. what were some of the best practices that you found in terms of teaching employability skills? So, so what we found in our research, and this is highlighted in our book, is, is we're seeing that some of these best practices are around ensuring demand-driven, experiential, hands-on learning. So, so we've seen that skills need to be relevant to, to employers, and, and we're seeing that partnerships between employers and businesses are absolutely crucial to, to close the gap and ensure that students are learning the relevant skills so that when they leave school, they're equipped with the right skills to be able to enter the labor market. And we're seeing that hands-on learning is one particularly uh, relevant way to do this, where in the classroom, students are learning by doing. So they're engaged, they're, it's very participatory and, and they're, they're fully immersed in, in what is going on in the classroom or outside of the classroom, as the case may be, in some of the models that we profiled. So hands-on learning is, is, is the best practice that, that you found? Absolutely. We're seeing that experiential hands-on learning, learning by doing, is, is something that's been shown to work in a lot of the uh, programs that we've studied in our research. And, and in addition to that, they, you know, there may be other opportunities to deliver these skills. So, for example, teamwork could be fostered through, say, business clubs at school or extracurricular activities. Uh, so, for example, one of the programs we studied had young, young students in secondary school forming these after-school business clubs where they came together to learn entrepreneurship skills and they identified a challenge in their community and then together they they created a, an enterprise to help solve that challenge, and and so they they learned about teamwork, they learned about communication, they they learned to identify and solve problems, and and in the in the midst of all of this, they of course learned about well how do you run an enterprise, how do you you know market your product, et cetera, et cetera, and so these business clubs were an interactive, hands-on way of delivering these skills to youth. Another skill that you mentioned in your book was English, and, and that being very important to employers. 
And I, 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 when I read that, I was just curious, um, thinking about Asia and Africa and having a lot of Chinese development aid pouring in. Um, and it made me wonder, you know, would not Chinese be an appropriate skill for students to learn, um, particularly as China invests more foreign direct investment in in those countries in Asia and Africa. So, you know, like why why English and not Chinese, I guess? Yeah, good good question. And 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 to be honest, you know, we we haven't done research into this area and we we you know don't quite know enough through our work to to say too much about this here. But I, I think that's worth probing in some more depth. And I, I think certainly there have been a lot of developments in the past couple of years with Chinese investment. Uh, and particularly, say Africa, that that may highlight some interesting interesting findings. Yeah, I guess it, well, for me, when I think when I start thinking about all these different types of skills and and how they they may change over the next thirty years or so, um, and and the power of a employer survey being used to dictate what skills need to be taught, it makes me you know I I start getting a little worried, I guess about the connection between public education and the private businesses and having them having a, a much larger say in, in public schooling. So did you, in your research, did you come across um, this tension? Um, and how, how, how did people make sense of it and, and navigate this tension? Um, that's a great question. Well, if not, you know, a slightly contentious and controversial one. Um, as we think about, you know, um, the increasing role of private sector in education. Um, but I think the reality is that even in privatizing, privatizing times like our own, the state still has a major, major part to play. Um, so, and in fact, no way is this fact more evident than in the educational arena, right? Um, so employers needs, um, need states to facilitate activities that aren't necessarily provided by the market. So infrastructures, um, not to mention providing them with an ongoing and suitably skilled um, supply of labor. Um, so here at RFD, you know, one of our big priorities is to work with a cross-section of change agents. And we recognize that these change agents can come from the government, they can be from the state or they can be from the private sector. They can be from a wide range of actors. Um, and they all contribute to kind of solving this challenge of, you know, getting young people um, working and getting them jobs. Um, so I, I, our general sense is that many of the most effective skills development models that we've identified in, you know, this book and in previous studies have relied on resources and commitments of a variety of stakeholders. So um, effective public-private partnerships are something that we're finding um, really important and allow even more impact and sustainability um, into existing education systems um, and improve their efficiency as well. So, but I, I think one important caveat here is, as I make that point, is that um, for, for these partnerships to be successful, there needs to be a clear mandate from each side and a clear... Um, set of definition uh, or a clear definition of responsibilities and benefits to each side to make these kinds of partnerships effective. In your research, when you spoke with these various employers um, in many countries, um, 
did you ever hear, did any of them say anything about the role of education and social cohesion? As researchers, we know that education is, is many times public education is about uh, getting students jobs in the labor market, so transitioning from education to the labor market, but also the idea of building social cohesion um, in nations. And, and these two goals look differently in different countries, and different countries emphasize one over the other in different periods. Um, but generally, we see these two sort of um, goals happening simultaneously in, in most education systems. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wonder, in, in a lot of these um, countries in, in, say, in Asia or in Africa that are developing or post-conflict, social cohesion is actually a very important piece of the education system to kind of create um, a unified nation. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to know, are, are employers talking about education in these terms as well? Do they see that role for education? Yeah, so I, I think in terms of I think in terms of social cohesion and the importance of social cohesion, I, I think that's a really good uh, issue to consider and think about. I, I think something that we've seen through our research is that social cohesion, and I think related to that is civic education, um, and I, I think that ties to your point there too. Civic education and citizenship, absolutely, we we see that it fits within a secondary education curricula, and as you say, as many countries in Africa and Asia are revising and updating their curricula, these two pieces, these two components, are very much part of this this new curricula, and and I, I you know very much part of this twenty first century literacies, if you think about it that way. What do you need to know in the 21st century? And these are 21st century literacies, and they're already being articulated. And, and you know, as you may know, the Sustainable Development Goal number four in, incorporates this as well. So we have SDG goal number four saying that by 2030, you know, learners are going to acquire this knowledge. They are going to be aware of human rights. They are going to be aware about sustainable development sustainable lifestyles. How do you promote a culture of peace? What does that look like? And this concept of global citizenship. So absolutely, I, I think that's on the forefront of the minds of educators in the curricula. One important piece here, though, is how are teachers trained to teach these skills? So I, I think, you know, having this in the curricula is very important. I think the next step is, of course, Ensuring that teachers and educators are appropriately trained to teach the subject and the content matter to, to students within the classroom. And I think that's where we, we need to do a little bit more thinking about how that can be done and ensuring that teachers are adequately trained to, to foster these skills in youth. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see that being very challenging because you're, m teachers are typically trained through some state program. And the skills we're talking about are, are, are being identified by employers. Mm -hmm. And so there, there must be some sort of influence of these employers on public policy. And that must translate into new training modalities for teachers. And that I could see that being very challenging in many of these countries. Absolutely. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, you know, that's, that's one of the pieces we highlight in our research, both this book and, and subsequent pieces of work we've done is this need for very close partnerships between educators, between employers, and of course, incorporating the voice of youth themselves. But, but it's important to get employers and businesses 
being able to talk to educators, both to say, this is what we, we need, these are the skills we need, and, and allowing that to then shape the curricula. And I, you know, that's particularly relevant for vocational schools uh, as well. Uh, one other point there, too, is that, as you say, teachers need to be able to be trained to teach those skills that employers are seeking. And so the role of the teacher is absolutely crucial. So, so that conversation, those partnerships between employers and educators and, and, and incorporating that perspective in the curricula is critical. And then the role of the teacher and, and how you're training teachers to deliver those skill sets is going to become very important. So how do you train and support teachers to, to teach socio-emotional skills? Uh, and, and, and we're seeing, and our research has shown, that, that often teaching methods continue to be a bit outdated. So, so for example, we're seeing that rote learning is still often commonplace. So, for example, you know, the teacher writes something on the board and students just copy it down. That's still the norm in many countries, and, and that's really not the ideal scenario when you're trying to teach a skill such as leadership or critical thinking, you know, skills that are prized by employers and, and are crucial to take with you from one job to the next. And, and so teacher training is, is very important. Another issue that I think is going to have to be navigated is this issue of class, because it really does seem like a lot of the skills that we're talking about, particularly these vocational skills, are meant for a particular type of student and not others. It's that what Wamboy said, the vocational training is excellent for someone else's children. Um, and so how, how can we navigate the issue of class by, you know, are, by, by promoting these various skills and trying to bridge the gap of skills that employers see? Um, how do we make sure that the education system is not basically reproducing class mm -hmm. divides in mm -hmm. society? I think there's a tremendous stigma surrounding vocational education. We touched on this earlier, and I, I think it's worth raising again. I, I think this the stigma is, is certainly there. I think it's there particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, but it's even here in the U.S. And it's crucial to change that mindset. And, and you know... In, in countries where vocational training doesn't carry as high a stigma, for example, in, in Germany, you're seeing that those countries are seeing a lower rates of youth unemployment. So something we need to think about is how can we change that mindset in countries where that stigma exists? And, and one way, as we discussed earlier, may be to show that link between vocational education and, and obtaining a job. So to be able to sort of make that pathway quite clear uh, so that's that's one thought. Something else is that there needs to be a more flexible approach to general versus vocational training. So there needs to be less rigidity uh, and less tracking. So so less funneling of students into certain tracks at you know say fourteen years of age when when they're still quite young. And so we need to ensure that all youth learn basic foundational skills uh, and and. And try to ensure that vocational training, on-the-job vocational training, it could take place alongside an academic path. Or there could be flexibility in moving from one path to the other, moving back, so on and so forth. Hmm. I mean, it, there's, there's a lot here. Um, and it's, it, it is, it's a very interesting book that you have put out because it, it really it looks at a lot of these issues in so many different countries um, that are so 
diverse, but also share many similarities when it comes to skill development in the 21st century. Um, so I do recommend it to all of the listeners out there to, to go check the book out. Um, and Wemboy Munge and Chuba Jeram, thank you so much for joining Freshet. It was really a pleasure to talk. Thank you so much, Will. Thanks. Thank you, Will. Great speaking to you. Wemboy Munge is a communications officer at Results for Development, and Shuba Jeram is a senior program officer. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang and Yuval Devere. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. It helps. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.